following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Let's go to Matthew 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 today. This is uh, our last week in our Advent series. It's called A Great Light. Um, We've had an incredible time in God's Word over these last several weeks, and uh, I expect today will be no different. Just to remind you, in case you haven't been able to be with us through all of them, or, uh, you know, in busyness, maybe uh, things aren't aren't as, uh, memory's not as crystal clear as maybe it has, can be other times of year. Week one, we went to Luke two, and we looked at the song of Simeon. Uh, Jesus' parents bring him into the temple. The the scriptures say that the Spirit of God led Simeon into the temple where he encountered the infant Jesus. And he is so overcome because Simeon's been waiting a long time for this. Uh, He he begins to sing a song. And in that song, he talks about the Lord letting him now go in peace because he has seen a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And, and, and so we explored in that first week just how deep the idea that God is light really goes. And uh, week two then, we went to 2 Corinthians 4 where we see this phrase, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so we talked about just practically how does Jesus and his gospel bring light to a dark world on that second week. And then week three, we went to Isaiah 9. And, and, and Simeon, when he was talking about a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel, uh, Simeon was quoting Isaiah 9, and that's what led us back there. But it talks about the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, and, and those are tribes in the northern area of the, the region where the, the people of God of, of Israel were, and, and, and later known as Galilee. Okay, And so in that prophecy, it says, in Galilee, there's people walking in darkness, but they will see a great light. And he says they're going to experience great gladness. Gladness as in harvest time, or gladness as in victory in war. And, and, and then he uses even this example, he says, like, like when Gideon defeated the Midianites, leads us to, to an understanding. And so we talked about what all that means, and really pulled that prophecy apart to understand. And, and then it, so it talks about this great light, and it talks about this gladness that God's people and even the Gentiles are going to experience as a result of this great light, this, this gladness that's going to come. And, and the reason he talked about Gideon was because Gid, the, the, the way Gideon defeated the Midianites was, was so incredibly clearly God's power. God did it in such a way, if you remember, by whittling down the amount of soldiers from 32,000 to 300, God wanted to make sure everyone knew that it was him, it was by his power that this victory came. And so that's, that's a different kind of joy than if you just kind of tough it out on your own or you, you and the rest of the soldiers, you can claim the victory for yourself to know that God has done it for you. And that's the point of, of what he's talking about. And then, and then, there's, then there's this pivot and, and you ask, okay, you've got this promise. The people in darkness are going to see a great light. They're going to have joy like harvest. They're going to have joy like when they win a battle and God won the battle for you. But, but okay, so how is he going to do that? And it says that a child will be born and a son will be given. This is the prophecy in Isaiah 9. And what that, what that leads us to is, is this idea that the birth of Christ was like the dawning of the sun after the darkest night. But today we're going to look at the reality that that sun continued to rise shedding more and more light and and pushing the darkness further and further into retreat. Today, we're going to be reading some verses that may not seem very Christmassy at first glance, but but I want you to try to remember as we work through this today. Remember the words of Simeon, and, and remember the words of Isaiah, and remember the declaration that Christ's birth made to mankind. And it's very base, this, this Christmas message is that we were in darkness and we needed a great light. That's really at the base of, of all of what we're celebrating and what we're remembering at Christmas time. And so uh, I hope you went to Matthew 5. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible to, to follow along, we'll have the verses on the screen. If, if you don't own a Bible, we have plenty we'd like to give you one. Please let us do that uh, at the end of the service. So as I said, Matthew 5, okay, keep all of that in mind as we read this. 
Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now let's go back to verse 1 and and work through this together. And I... Don't be scared. It's going to be all right. I, I have to backtrack a little bit into chapter 4 here. The, the last three verses of chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus was going throughout Galilee. Okay, remember? The region that Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier would see a great light. Okay, so Jesus is moving throughout Galilee. He's, it's, it tells us he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing the sick and he's casting out demons. This this is, is the context that we're leading up here to, to Matthew 5. And in verse 25 of chapter 4, okay, so that being the last verse before we bust into chapter 5, it, it shows us that the light, that great light that dawned, it was spreading because it says people were coming from not just Galilee, but from Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. So that, that light that had dawned, Upon those in, in the region of Galilee, Christ being that light, that light was spreading. People are now paying attention. And, and I want to point that out because it was very likely that the miracles Jesus was performing, it, it was those that drew many of these people, right? That's, that's, and, and Jesus even talks about that later in his ministry, right? You, you guys like the signs and wonders. But here's what we need to understand. It was his teaching that people needed most. People may have showed up for the miracles, but it was his teaching that they needed most. Now, let me make sure this is balanced. I am not saying that God did not care about their need for deliverance or even delight in delivering them. The Bible talks about our God being powerful and generous to use that power to help us. But I do, this is for sure true. A major function of the miracle working of Jesus was to open the hearts of people to his message. Here, okay, you might say, okay, well, I don't know. And, and this is a good chance for us to think, okay, when, even when I'm reading the scriptures, okay, let's, we'll get to what draws us to God in just a second, but even when I'm reading the scriptures, what, which parts excite me? Which parts do I really enjoy reading? Do I, do I get a lot more excited about the the big supernatural displays of miraculous power that Jesus does than I do when the Bible says he opened up his mouth to teach. Because friends, to receive a miracle which brought relief from some trouble in this life, but miss his message and eternal life would be a tragedy of the highest order. And I don't know, that I think there's sometimes people think what they need most from God is a miracle. What we need most from God is his message, for sure. So Jesus sits, we see here in the first verse. He's taking the posture of a teacher in that time, and he opens his mouth to teach. And and friends, we have recorded here the very life-giving and light-bearing words of God. And so I'm asking that we approach these things in that way with those things in mind. 
And I want to just take a moment to, <clears throat> because we're going to see the word blessed a lot here, so I want to take a minute just to put some shape to that before we jump in. The, the simplest kind of <clears throat> Greek to English you can get for this word blessed is, is happy, okay? So really, you, you say, happy is he who is poor in spirit. Happy is he, okay, who is pure in heart. But in, in that... For us, happy in English, has, it, it means something different than what it meant then. And so let me, let me read this to you from a, a commentator. The, the Greek word is makarios, okay? And so this is, this is some of what's contained in that. Makarios then describes that, that joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. And, and so I know you've heard me say this. You've probably heard it said elsewhere. When, when the Bible talks about the joy of the Lord, we sang about it this morning. The joy of the Lord being our strength. There is a, there is a distinction between kind of the, the general sense of elation and emotion of happiness that comes when good things happen, right? That comes when uh, you hold a baby or pet a puppy or, you know, whatever, right? Like, I like all those things and I like the feeling I get. Oxytocin's awesome, isn't it? It's really great. I'm awesome. I'm really happy about how awesome oxytocin is. But that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about something deeper rooted in things that don't change, okay? It's talking about the joy of the Lord, and, and, and being blessed is having that, okay? So that will help us kind of understand more what these phrases are leading us to, all right? Uh, and, and, and remember, and you might be saying, okay, yeah, I don't know, man, I still don't see the Christmas tie-in. Well, you haven't given me any time, so I'll get you there. But hold on, there's something right here I want to remind you of, okay? So we, we see this blessed idea, this happiness, this, this, this joy that is the result of these beatitudes, as they're often called. But do you remember what Isaiah 9 said? The people who saw a great light would have because a child would be born and a son would be given. Do you remember what we said? In Isaiah 9, it says that they will rejoice. They will have great gladness. They will, they will have joy as a result of this great light dawning, of this child being born and this son being given. And so what, one thing to understand here is if you track through Matthew... Yes, Jesus was traveling throughout Galilee. He was preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom and the synagogues and all of that. But this is very, very, it's, it's, it's loaded to the front end of Jesus' ministry, okay? This is, he's just getting going here. The, the light is dawning in, a, in another, the, the birth of Christ, yes, it was in itself a dawning, but, but it, the, the, the light wasn't fully revealed. Jesus had to get to the point where he stepped into this ministry and purpose that God had sent him for. And we're getting, we're getting some of the, the very beginning of that. Uh, as people are, are first understanding, man, this guy has some things to say that I think I might want to hear. And, and so and there's, there's some commentators that would say that they think this kind of, the, the content of Matthew 5 through 7, this was, this was probably something Jesus preached a lot. As he traveled around and was talking to different crowds in different places, this is probably the content, and, and that's bore out. Luke talks about this kind of very similar content happening in a different circumstance, and so, you know, Jesus, you may think, man, everywhere he went, I talked about this last week, the pressure sometimes preachers feel or whoever might feel to always say something new, but um, it seems like this, this right here, this is, this is core to the message that Jesus brought from heaven <laughs> to give to us. And so that I'm just I'm just trying to I'm ju I'm just trying to make sure it weighs what it should weigh in our hearts this morning as we approach it, okay? And this this core of the message of Christ is the core of the message of of Christmas. It all it all goes together, okay? All right. And one other thing out of just taking a moment to define the word blessed and what that means, I, I just want to ask you here's something to think about. You can put a pin in it. Don't don't get off on your own thought trail here because I'm, I'm about to bust into these beatitudes, so I need you with me, okay? But here, just put a pin in this. Think, I want you to think about this question. Maybe write it down. Taking all that into consideration, what is your answer if I ask you, are you blessed? Are you blessed? Okay? I think, I think that's a good question to ask ourselves, and here's a follow-up. 
What do you think about when deciding how to answer that? If I ask you, are you blessed, what do you first go to mentally to assess, am I? It'll, it'll actually show us a whole lot. Those are very helpful questions, okay? All right. We know what blessed is. We know why we're here and what's going on. Let's get down into the meat of this, okay? So verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, oftentimes, as we do, uh, people, people mistakenly remember a part of this verse, and it can drastically change the meaning. That's problematic. Some people remember this to say, blessed are the poor. That's not what it says. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first thing we need to know about that is, it's, it's very important that we don't reduce this down to um, some discussion of socioeconomic status, because that's not even in view. Poor in spirit has nothing to do with, uh, in this time, how many coins are in your coin purse, or now, uh, how, how much money's in, in your bank account. It's, it's literally not even in view of what's being discussed here. And so we know that biblically, there is, there, righteousness is not attached to a socioeconomic status, okay? All throughout the Bible, you can look, you can find examples of righteous, rich people, right? And some of you struggle with that. When I say rich people, some of you instantly go, rich people, evil, greed, yucky, okay? That's sinful. You should stop that because there's righteous, rich people in the Bible, Okay? But there's unrighteous rich people in the Bible. Also, when I say poor, some of you, even, even because of this verse and, and how it's often misquoted, you go, oh yeah, the Lord likes poor people. There's wicked poor people in the scriptures too. See, the Bible's far smarter than, than we are. It doesn't let us narrow things down to these categories and divide people the way we often do. There's righteous poor people. There's unrighteous poor people. There's righteous rich people and unrighteous rich people. Socioeconomic status is not in view at all when it comes to this verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? To be poor in spirit, it speaks of those who know they are in darkness without the light of Christ. To be poor in spirit is to have the recognition that you are in need of something outside of yourself. To know that you're in darkness. There's There's a humility that comes with that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that, make, doesn't that now make that make a lot more sense than if it's talking about folks that are socioeconomically disadvantaged? The only people that are going to be able to end up in the kingdom of heaven are those that first know that I, I am spiritually bankrupt in and of myself. Poor in spirit. That's exactly what that's talking about. And, and somehow is often missed. And it, it's no surprise to me, I think it's further evidence that this is what Jesus means, that that's the first of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because there is no hope of any of the other of these being, being present in somebody's heart, mind, and life if the first is not in place. The first and only way you're coming to God is humbly. The first and only way you're coming to God is knowing that you have great need of him that you are not spiritually whole of yourself, that you are not the source, you are not the great light, but that you need it. This is the, the, the basics of the gospel. This is the basics of the message of the kingdom. Amen. You should have liked that better than you, than you acted like you did. That's good, and that's going to help us to understand the rest because the Beatitudes are far more soaked with gospel truth than people often think. Unfortunately, the Beatitudes are oftentimes relegated to this kind of moral code, and, and most people, even people that aren't, aren't necessarily followers of Jesus, they'll look at this and go, oh yeah, I can kind of like that. But if, if you kind of like the Beatitudes, and that's really, the, really kind of all the response you have to it, it's really, really, really sure that you don't understand what they're saying. Because the Beatitudes bring the same full frontal assault to us that the Christmas story broadly brings to us. The Beatitudes bring this idea to us. You are a sinner that needs a savior. You, in and of yourself, are not righteous. You need to first understand you're poor in spirit. That leads directly into the next one. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a particular application to this. I think it also goes broader because the, the scriptures support that, and I'm going to talk about what I'm saying, but in a particular context. So if the first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and then blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This, the particular application of this mourning really has to do with genuine sorrowful, not worldly sorrow, but genuine sorrowful mourning and repentance over our sin. It's not just saying, oh, I'm, I'm dark and broken. Oh, there's, there's no hope for me. It's not just staying there, but it's also this, this recognition and this, this brokenheartedness over the reality that there is a God who is perfect and good, who is all and only light, who is holy and who loves us, and that I have, I have chosen to rebel against him. Like, what does that actually do all the way down in my heart? And those who have a genuine mourning about that, they will avoid what the Bible calls worldly sorrow, a, a false repentance that is only really concerned with the negative ramifications that have come from their sin. Not that, yeah, I, I've sinned and that's meant bad, hard things, so I don't like that. No, man, take it further. Make it personal. Realize there is a God who invites us to call him Father who is good and loving and has proved it in every way that he possibly can, and that when we sin, we don't just break his rules, we break his heart. That in his love for us, he, 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 it's not, it's not, he's not this, this egotistical tyrant that so many see him to be. He's a father who loves his kids. And we can understand that, even though we do it imperfectly. Any, any of us dealing with a little child that's doing something that's going to lead to their harm, we can understand the position God is in watching us all the time. A child playing in the street, you know, to go snatch that child or to, or to yell at that child to get out of the street or to, to even bring consequences to that child to remind them, man, the street is not for you. None of that is unloving. All of that is absolutely the actions of a parent that genuinely cares for the welfare of that little one. And so this, this does apply to mourning over our sin, particularly when we keep it in, in the flow that it's in. But we, we, do, we also know that in a broader sense, those who mourn will be comforted. Psalm 34 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. What an incredible promise. What a helpful truth. All the time, but maybe particularly in this time of year, because we are singing about joy. We are focusing on the light that Christ brings. But at this time of year, for various reasons and, and circumstances, uh, there are those who are mourning. There are those who are struggling. There are family situations that are broken. There are situations that are less than ideal, and that leads to pain, uh, particularly when we, we contrast our situation as it stands with maybe what the ideal is. And, and we may need to have a broader understanding of that. That could possibly be helpful. But in any case, it, do, it doesn't matter to what degree any, any pain you may be experiencing right now as a result of it being the Christmas season and maybe things not being the way you wish they were, whatever that means. Here's what's really precious and true. To whatever degree the, the pain you're feeling about that, about that may, may be things that need to change in your heart and perspective. Can we just be honest and say that may be true? It could, it could be some of the pain you're experiencing may, may be a perspective issue on your part. It may be not believing some truth that, that God has made clear, but there may also just be hard things that, that has nothing to do with that. But wherever it lands in all of that, God, God doesn't say in his word, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted if their brokenheartedness is a 100% result of truth and it's not, some of it's not their own fault. Does it? It just says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And I hope you can take all the comfort that's possible out of that truth and believe it. And if you, if you want to, but you, you don't think you, you are really grasping it or perceiving the reality of that truth in your life, I'm just going to ask you to pray and ask God to help you. There, here's what I know. If you're brokenhearted, the Lord is near to you. I, I, I don't know if you feel it, but I know he is, because he does what he says, always. And, but there may, there may be something in between you and being able to really, really perceive the truth of that precious promise in your life. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm going to pray broadly for 
any of us in that position, but I'm going to ask you to pray for yourself. If, if you know, yeah, I know the word says that, but it doesn't seem, I don't feel that right now. Uh, the Lord can help with that. And so we can, we can pray a prayer of faith and ask Jesus to help us. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, one thing I just think is worth pointing out at this juncture. Have any of you noticed that, that everything we've read thus far, what have we said? Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Have you noticed that none of these seem to be things that human wisdom would list as sources of joy? Right? When humans, if, if, we're, if we're building like, all right, here's, here's the uh, profile of a winner, with our wisdom. Is, is poor in spirit, mourning, gentleness, are these the things that make the top of the list for us? Not typically. No, we like assertiveness, go-getters, people that know their worth and demand that others know it. That's how you get ahead. That's how, you, that's how you're a winner. Well, it is no surprise to me that these core truths of the kingdom of God being defined here for us by Jesus present an upside-down and inside-out reality. The kingdom of God operates totally different than mostly mo what most of us would anticipate. Um, take, for example, Jesus being born to a poor couple in a manger, just maybe as exhibit one. <laughs> okay? If I was telling a story, if I was building a savior, messiah, king, uh, that would not be his origin story. I don't think it would be for just about anybody if you were making it up. Just, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, and then he went and lived in this little podunk place in Galilee that nobody even, I mean, it's a dot that nobody even cares about. That's, that's where he grows up. His training in, in, in the courts of like Solomon's descendants and, you know, with all, in, in the libraries of wisdom, if he's going to be the guy, this guy, man, we got to make, he's, surely he's going to be raised in the, in the courts of royalty among the best instructors. Now his dad was a carpenter, he's probably fixing wagons and stuff. Hmm. My point, God just does stuff different than you'd ever think he would. So I, I don't know, why do we stay surprised? <laughs> We're goofy sometimes. So, I would say gentleness also, when people are like, all right, how am I going to be happy in this life? How am I going to end up a winner, right? Gentleness, you just, I need to be gentle if that's going to be the case. It's not what we would say. But here we're talking about a, a recipe um, for joy that is, is far deeper than oftentimes what we're seeking. So some of, you may have a translation that says, blessed are the meek, okay? It's just another English way to kind of talk about this or, or define this, this Greek word. I actually like gentle better. I think, it's, I think it's helpful because most of us don't say meek a whole lot nor really understand what it, it maybe means. So what is, what is, when the Bible talks about gentleness, it's also listed as a fruit of the Spirit. What, what is it talking about? I think oftentimes we mistake gentleness for weakness. Okay, uh, And I get how that happens, but it's, it's actually so important that we don't do that because it's, it, this is another thing that is exactly upside down and inside out of the reality, and we, we get mixed up on it. Gentleness is not weakness. Weakness is weakness. And you actually cannot be gentle if you're weak. The only way you can be gentle is if you're strong enough to actually be a threat. Okay? If, if you're weak and you respond in such a way that could be perceived as gentle, it's not because... You, you could have done anything else. You're just weak, okay? But gentleness is, is to, to have the power where you could do something different, but you choose to respond with gentleness. Let's sit for a second and just think if we can think of any good examples of that. I don't know, God, right? You know, there's God in Christ, yes, right? Has, has all the power to respond to our sin in, in a way that would, would be totally fair, wiping us out, and yet responds with gentleness instead. So he went first. He's shown us the greatest example of what gentleness is. But this here, listen, 
blessed, joyful are, is, is going to be the person who walks in gentleness. Um, goes so far as to say they will inherit the earth. And I think a lot of what we see in the Beatitudes is this reality that as, as it starts to lay out these kind of character qualities, when you start with a gospel understanding at the beginning, when you know that poor in spirit doesn't mean not very many dollars, but understanding that I have, I have nothing without God, that I am unrighteous in and of myself, that I am spiritually bankrupt in and of myself, if, if, and, and mourning over sin, right? When, when, you, when you come to this with the gospel lens that you should and apply it, you, you quit having a, a list of do's and don'ts, and, and you start to understand this whole thing, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. The only way you're really going to be able to operate in gentleness is by having the proper example and understanding what it means. And when you understanding the gentleness of God is part of approaching the gospel rightly. Like that, that's part and parcel of, of trusting in Christ is knowing that God is gentle, that he is mighty and powerful and has, and has not done what he could do. Same goes for mercy. Same goes for, you know, that, that, so there's a theme here. And it, it's all leading to something that I think puts a real proper capstone on this idea of a great light that we've been exploring, okay? Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So in order to, what does that mean? In order to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you, first of all, you can't be self-righteous. Are you picking up a theme here? Starting with poor in spirit and working all the way down? What, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? First of all, you have to realize, I'd, I'm not. I'm not full of righteousness in and of myself. And what is, what is, what is the promise here of Jesus if we do, if, if we make that realization and, and we actually, more than the other appetites that can drive us in this life for power or prestige or money or respect or... Um, fleeting happiness or these, these other hungers and desires that drive us, if, if we do actually realize the great value of righteousness and, and, we, and we do desire, we hunger and we thirst for it, what, what will happen? They'll be filled. Anybody that comes to God in that way saying, I do not have righteousness in my own, but I want it. I know that I need it. I know that I, know that I need it as much as, as I need food to survive. I need the righteousness of God. God doesn't turn people away that come like that. Amen. Only they will be satisfied. Verse 7. Blessed are the, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Same, same idea I broke into in gentleness. Mercy is not a natural... Mercy is not natural, okay? And I would say it is almost impossible... I, I would probably say it's impossible, but I'm, I know somebody might think of something, so I'm just going to say almost impossible, but, but the idea, it's a very strong almost impossible, okay? You with me? <laughs> All right? Mercy is not natural, and it is almost impossible to give it without having received it first, okay? And you might, okay, you're, I hope you're thinking about it. It's like, okay, this guy just made a big statement. He said it's a strong statement. He's really standing by it. Okay, well, is that true? Let me think about it. Well, okay, good. I'm glad you're thinking. Let's think of this example together, all right? Think of the response of a child that gets hit by another child. If a child is more tender in nature, they, they may cry and they may tell on the kid that hit them. Or if they're more strong-willed, they will probably do what when another child hits them? Right? This will be fun. <laughs> Who was the cry and tell their parents kid? If you're just being honest, put your hand in the air, those tender-hearted ones. It's okay, nobody's judging anybody. My wife raised her hand, thank you for being brave. Okay? Who were the punch-the-kid-back people? We're probably the worst sinners, so I don't know what we were proud of putting our hand in the air. We're, at, least the ones, at least the ones that run and tell, they, they might be halfway there to this mercy thing. But, but what I'm saying is not really, because in either case, where the kid cries, and runs and tells mom and dad, or they clock them back, what do they want? They want retribution. Whether they feel like they got the, the umph to, to hit big brother or big sister back or whatever, 
or they want mom and dad to do it. They want justice for this infraction, don't they? In either case, they want retribution. I, I, I can say this with a lot of confidence. I have never seen a young child without having mercy taught and modeled for them, and normally more than once, many more times than once, I've never seen a young child choose to just forgive an infraction and extend mercy unless they have been taught to do so and had that modeled so that they understand. It's just, can, can we just be honest about how unnatural it is to get smacked in your face and, and for out of you comes, you know what, that's all right, I love you. <laughs> Mercy. And we're, and we're picking on the kids, you know. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm hoping you're going ahead and making the logical leap that you need to make. We're talking about the kids. That's, I'm, I'm sneaky. You see what I'm doing? It's a, it's a little sugar in the cough medicine, you understand. We're talking about kids and their nature, but how are we doing when we get smacked and whatever that looks like? Treated poorly by someone else, whatever that looks like. Are we not prone to, however we get it, wanting justice, wanting retribution as opposed to mercy? But Jesus says here, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so the important thing I'm seeing here, we're back to the gospel. You aren't going to operate in mercy until you've received mercy first. None of these beatitudes are happening until you're poor in spirit, until you mourn over your sin, until you're seeking after righteousness, you're hungry and thirsty for it. Until you have been impacted by the love of God and the mercy of God, you will not even have a framework for being able to operate in mercy towards others. And you might be saying, well, no, man, there are people. There are people that they, they, wouldn't seek, they wouldn't seek vengeance. Look, even if they don't go tell somebody, even if they don't go tell the authorities, or even if they don't strike back, can't eat... Without mercy, maybe their reaction is just to internalize that anger and hold a grudge. But it's still, they still think they're getting retribution. Now that person's on their list. Or now I'm, I'm cutting that person, I'm done with that person. It's still, that's not mercy. Just not hitting them back. And again, we're using children hitting each other. And, and I mean, the, the thing applies here. But most of you, the biggest problem in your life is not someone hitting you. But there are many ways where people metaphorically hits you, okay? They're rude or they're, they're, they're unthoughtful or whatever the thing is, right? So even, even us internalizing that, and, 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 and isn't it amazing that we could end up kind of sitting there feeling self-righteous because I didn't react. I, w- I was merciful all the time, not understanding, that we're, not, we're not having enough introspection to understand, no, I wasn't merciful. I just turned that into a grudge. I just let that drop down into my heart as a seed of bitterness and take root. That's not true mercy. That's not what God has done with us in Christ. Like, oh yeah, cosmic treason. Well, I'm not going to smite him, but I'm going to stay mad at him forever. Hmm. Couldn't I have found something a little light and airy for the last like Christmas Advent thing, man? Gosh, this guy... This is helping me. I'm just, I'm just going to preach it to myself, and you can get some if you want to. Thankfully, God went first in extending mercy to us. And when we, when we respond to others in the same way, we receive more mercy from Him. And in some cases, we'll even receive it from other people. Sowing and reaping is a real thing. Okay? Let's look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, this, Disney grabbed this one, didn't they? What does it mean to be pure in heart? Is it, well, right off the bat, go back up, put a gospel lens on these beatitudes and understand it, it's only starting with being poor in spirit. It's only starting with mourning over our sin. It's only starting with hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're not going to be pure in heart because you purify your own heart. You're not going to be pure in heart because you do it yourself, whatever it means. All of the others so far, they open up the potential for this, and, and it's likely that this idea of pure in heart has kind of two intertwined meanings, that they're, they're close but different. The first would be inner purity as opposed to outward appearance. Jesus talks a lot about that, doesn't he? When, he was, when he's dealing with the Pharisees, he says, look, you guys got the robes, you, you got the outward acts, 
You're tithing off your spice rack. I get it. But inward, you're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. So when it talks about this idea of a pure heart, oftentimes we see when Jesus gets into that idea, it's a distinguishment between outward appearances of piety and what's really going on. And we just dipped into that talking about mercy, didn't we? Because some of you could have come in here today thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty prone to mercy. Pe- people do bad things to me. I don't ever react. And I don't tell on them either. But, but what's going on in your heart about it? Because Jesus cares all, much more about that than what kind of outward reactions you can muster. <laughs> like, dang it, Jesus, I thought I was doing good, right? He's always coming to mess with you. Well, what about in here? <laughs> oh! <laughs> Whoops, right? But aren't you so glad he does? Aren't you so glad he won't settle for the facades that we can put up? Aren't you so glad he loves us enough to keep messing with us? I'm glad. I'm not sad about it. I hope you aren't either, man. Because if he just left me to my own, boy, I could construct this incredible outer image and be, be a dead man inside. Not a pure heart, a putrid heart. And all the time, prancing around as if. Oh man, how sad would that be? The gospel won't let me. My king won't let me. Cares what's going on in the heart. So it, it, it very likely has this, this pure in heart. It's, not, not, it's talking about you know, this, an, an inner thing more than an outer thing. But also, it, pure in heart can be talking about a singular devotion to God. Right? That you're not, you're, you're, your affections are not, uh, are not split Okay, that you, you have a, a pure and a singular love for the God that made you, and that your love for whatever else, whoever else you love in this world, it, it's, it's flowing from that first and singular love between you and the Lord. Okay? And, and what does it say about this? <clears throat> it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's interesting here is is that it doesn't just say, you know, Jesus, he's running around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4 told us. It's interesting that the end of these is not the same on everyone, that, uh, you know, blessed are the the pure in heart for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for the kingdom of God is theirs. Like, there's these these little distinctives at the end that, that leads us to all these, it opens doors to all these additional facets of what God is calling us to and what he's doing with us. And, and so this talks about being pure in heart. I mean, the only way we will see God, they, the pure in heart, shall see God. And I, and I think it's important for us to understand that that is talking about eternally. If your heart is not pure before God, now let's remember, how does your heart get pure before God? First by coming, poor in spirit, acknowledging that you can't purify your own heart. It's actually him taking a heart of stone and by his supernatural power, making it a heart of flesh, okay? So it's a supernatural thing that happens when we come to God humbly. We're poor in spirit. We're mourning over our sin. We're seeking. We're thirsty and hungry for righteousness. God does this thing that only he can do. This is what salvation is. God gives us this new heart, okay? So you're only getting a pure heart from God's perspective through Christ and his gospel, Okay, so that's important to remember. Don't think, don't go out here and go, okay, yeah, I want to see God. So I, I need to have a, I need to purify my heart. That's not, you don't purify your heart, okay? You, you put faith in the God who purifies hearts. You pursue him and he is the one that can do, he's the surgeon. He's the great physician, okay? You don't, you don't take a scalpel and go, okay, let's get to work. In a spiritual sense, in a physical sense, for sure you wouldn't, I hope, wouldn't do that. If you're on YouTube video thinking you're going to you know, go in and mess with your aorta and fix that little valve, like, no, let's well, not. And, but it's, I'm going to say it's even more ridiculous to think we can, with how multidimensional the spiritual elements of our heart is, to think we're going to go in and do that work. Only Jesus can do that by his spirit. But this is, this is talking about us seeing God in the eternal sense, okay? And that's the way I always read it, but I didn't really think about the fact that this would also mean pure in heart that I can... I can also, without being pure in heart, I also won't see God here and now. It's not just that someday, like kind of the unveiled face thing, right? When we're standing in the light of his glory, but 
without a heart that is purified before God, we're going we're gonna to miss his fingerprints in the here and now because they're here. And that's, that's the problem. You'll, 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 you'll hear people talk as if they've lived their whole life and never, never seen any evidence of, of a, a good God. But the Bible says that's not true. Romans 1 says if you just look around at nature, you can see the fingerprints of a good and loving and powerful God. And without a pure heart, you're not going to be able to look at all that God has made and go, wow, God is amazing. But you can. With a pure heart, you can. With a heart that has had the miraculous work of salvation done upon it, you can. You can, you can walk outside on a beautiful day and look around and go, I, I, see, I see God's handiwork in this. You can look at other people, and instead of being very acutely aware of all their flaws, you can see the image of God in them. You can, with a pure heart, open the Scriptures, and with the help of the Spirit, understand and see the, the beauty and the goodness of God from His Word. And so this pure in heart thing, yes, it's about seeing God in an eternal sense, but it's also about seeing God here and now. And he wants both for us. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What do you, what do you think of when you hear the word peacemaker? I, I think it, it can probably, it, it elicits a lot of mental images probably, but I think to, to boil this down, I... Of all the Beatitudes, I probably quote this one the most um, in just dealing with people. I think this idea uh, of Jesus saying, blessed are the, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Uh, again, it's the same as mercy. It's the same as gentleness. You, if you have not experienced the, the, the peacemaking mercy of God with you, you're not going to be able to go out into a, a world and, and do anything about it with other people. But I think what, it's clear what we're being called to here. It's kind of two-dimensional. It's talking, if we're being peacemakers, so that means what? We are, we are bearers of peace. We, we, are, we feel a deputization. We feel an empowerment. We feel a responsibility that when the shalom of God, the peace of God is broken in a place for whatever reason, it's broken among a people for whatever reason, it's broken between two people for whatever reason, if I'm a peacemaker... Because of God in me, I have, I have a responsibility to care about that. Now, does this mean if you see a fight on the street, you have to go jump and throw your body in between it? I don't think so. Particularly, you know, depending on your fighting skills and whether you belong in a street fight or not, right? Like, if you don't, then don't. But you can be a peacemaker by calling the authorities and or praying right there, caring about it at least. The question is, you're at the red light and you look over and two people are just knocking each other's faces in. Like, what is your first, like, do you, first of all, do you even care? Does it bother you that peace is broken between those two people? That the shalom of God is, is not operating between those two people? Does it affect your heart? Or are you just like, come on, green light, right? I hope they don't knock the mirror off my car, right? Like, you know, is it instantly like some kind of selfish focus? Or this is now about me? Oh, my day's being ruined because I'm seeing this, right? Or it's like, man, God, it, it really hurts my heart to see two image bearers of God beating on each other like that. That they're that angry that they would go that far. And, and I'm kind of jumping to this very extreme physical example, but as we talked about earlier, it's not just about people hitting each other. The peace of, the peace of God is, is broken many times without physical violence ever being in, in the equation. Between spouses, between kids and parents, between people within the church and out of the church, and, and we should feel a responsibility to care about that. Okay? And so a peacemaker knows that God has empowered them to, to, to fight. Here's, here's an enigmatic statement. To fight for peace between men and men and God and men. Because for those who have not come to the place of being poor in spirit, who have not mourned over their sin, who have not understood yet that that hunger and thirst they feel is for righteousness, so they, they keep trying to shove other stuff in the hole and it doesn't work. For those that are not at peace with God, that should bother us and we should understand God has deputized us to address that and also to be peacemakers, promoters of peace between mankind, okay? What does he say then? So, so he just hit us with all that. That's, that's heavy. That's a lot to, to keep track of. <laughs> uh, a lot of things I need to be thinking about if I want to be blessed according to Jesus. 
If I want to have this joy, I think also inherent in this is, you know, we're talking about how the go- every one of these is pointing us to the gospel, but the, the whole points us to the gospel as well. Because when you read that list, you're like, oh boy, I don't think I can do all that all the time. Bingo! You can't. Which is why when Isaiah prophesied, he said they're going to have gladness like harvest. They're going to have gladness like when in, in victory at wartime. How? How are they going to have this joy? A child's going to be born and a son's going to be given. God's going to have to do it like he did for Gideon against the Midianites, right? It all ties together. You see how it ties together? It's all there. Amen. Okay. You see it. Good. All right. Verses 10 through 12. So what then? What's the implications? If you live in the bright illumination of these beautiful truths that run very counter to the wisdom of man, you will stand out in stark contrast to the darkness of this world. And at times it will cost you. That's what verses 10 through 12 are saying. Don't despair when that happens. Because if you live in this very inside out, upside down, countercultural way, the very opposite way against the grain of basic human nature, in many cases, you will stand out. And you'll stand out even more if you, if you have the boldness to say, I'm doing this because I believe in Jesus. <laughs> I, I, I'm like this because Jesus has made me like this. Because I, I roll with Jesus. Okay, that, then, then you're going to stand out even more. And what he's saying is, look, don't despair when it costs you. Rejoice when it costs you. Because friends, it's one of the greatest litmus tests that, that we're doing any of this. That we're operating in any of these things. A great question that these few verses should bring us. If the whole premise here is, if you live like this, you're going to stand out and people aren't going to like it. It's going to cause you trouble sometimes, but don't be worried about that. Rejoice in that. The question for us today is, has it? Has it? Have we ever run into trouble because our life and conduct is in such contrast to the natural order of things that it creates friction sometimes? I'll let you think about that, jot a note, and maybe pray about it later, okay? Amen. That's a good question. And you might be thinking, all right, yeah, cool. I heard all that. You seem excited. But what does it really matter? Does it matter if we live by these truths? What if, what if I feel pretty happy already? Or, or for whatever reason, maybe I'm not worried about whether I'm blessed or not. Maybe you, you're very bent towards self-deprecation. Maybe you're sitting here saying, look, man, I don't deserve to be blessed. So I'm not worried about any of that. Maybe you're not sure it's worth it. Like, that's a lot. If that's what it takes, eh. You know, I'm, I think maybe I'm okay not being blessed. <laughs> but what is really at stake, friends? What Does it really matter? Well, the next couple of verses lay the, lay the stakes out for us. And, and here's the thing. It's, it's not a huge deal. It's, it's just the fate of the world. Just the fate of the world. Let's see. What am I talking about? <clears throat> Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What's he talking about? Well, friends, we, we think of salt, you know, we put it on nachos, we put it on popcorn, we put it on all kinds of stuff. Um, we think of it primarily for flavor, and that is part of what he's talking about, that the, 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 what it means for there to be people in the world living by this different light-filled standard, okay, of the gospel, that is, that is going to add a flavor into the world that, that without those people will not be there, and that will be, that will be harmful. People, the world will be less tasty <laughs> with, without this, okay? Good. It's, it's just, it'll be less good, okay? So that, that's, that's an issue, but, but it's even deeper than that because Yes, salt was used for flavor in that time, but primarily, the lack of refrigeration, salt was about preservation. Salt was about stopping the rot that comes to all things unless it's somehow preserved. Okay? Ancient times, you wanted meat not to 
rot, salt was the answer. And so that's, this, this is the other way. And so now we're getting into a little bit higher stakes. So part of what, part of what Jesus is saying here is, so he, he gives us this whole list of what it looks like to live by his kingdom standards. And then he's, so here's what, here's all the details. Here's what that means. Us living like that by the power of God, by the spirit of God, is going to be, it's going to add flavor into the world. And it's also going to stop the rot that will inevitably come without the power of God operating in the world. And, and you might, so most of my point, we're trending now into this idea where I'm, I'm asking you to be motivated by selfless love and care for others. Even if you're sitting here saying, I don't know if, I'm, I don't know if the trade-off, I look at that whole list, like that's a lot to manage. I, I don't know if I'm that worried about being blessed. It's not just about you being blessed, it's about the world being blessed. It's about the fate of the world hangs in the balance. The one thing that matters in this world is whether people understand they are in darkness and whether or not they see this great light. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus was born. A great light did dawn. Jesus lived. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus fed the hungry. He did all that. And he said in John 9... While I am here, I am the light of the world. But now he's about to say something that that changes the whole paradigm and really should ratchet up our understanding of how important it is to care about this. The fate of the world hangs in the balance. Oh, you're just a preacher. You're using hyperbole. Okay, well, tell me, then you tell me what this means, okay? We just talked about salt. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Friends, the birth of Christ, Christmas, it's amazing. I'm so glad we celebrate it every year. I'm so glad we take time for Advent and we remember the faithfulness of God to his promise that a, a child would be born and a son would be given. But friends, we cannot think that that's the end of the, like, that's the thing. Like, okay, we light a bunch of lights at Christmas because Jesus was born. Yay! It's light time. Yay! I feel warm and fuzzy. Yay! We sing songs that I like at this time and we give each other some presents. Like, that was, that was the beginning of the mission. Jesus coming in the flesh was the beginning. He grew. And then he stepped into his ministry empowered by the Spirit. And the whole deal, what was he coming to do? How was was this great light going to dawn? How was this darkness going to be dispelled? What was the end game? The end game was Jesus coming to light a bunch of lamps. He was the light. He was the flame. But what he was coming to do, the whole plan of how we're going to get this done, how we're going to bring light to a dark world, is he's going to come and light a bunch of lamps. We are not the flame. Without him, we are a lamp. What is a, what is a lamp with no light? Nothing. It's garbage. Throw it away. You absolutely are not fulfilling your purpose. You are junk. Okay, that was harsher than I meant it to sound. That's not really the point I was making. I mean, it's there, so do with it what you will. But the point is, really, what what we see here Jesus saying is he's letting us in on on the master plan, the end game. The end game was for Jesus to bring his church into existence and to light people with the light of his gospel, with the power of his spirit, and then send them. That's why Jesus said, while I am here, I am the light of the world. Jesus came. He died. He rose. He ascended to the Father, and then he sent his Holy Spirit. And friends, does it matter? Does it matter if you're blessed? Yes, it matters that you're blessed. A, because God loves you, and he wants you to have joy and happiness. First of all, you need to decide if you believe that. But it also matters if you're blessed, because you being blessed is not just for you. You being blessed is about taking this standard, believing The the flame of Christ's passion and love and truth is meant to light you and and give you a purpose above all the other purposes that can be found in this world. That is what, that's the end game of Christmas. Christmas is awesome, but part of the beauty of us celebrating Advent is, yes, we're looking at the fulfillment of a promise that was 
that, that did happen in Christ's coming, but we're also looking forward to a promise of Christ coming again. We are in the in-between. And the fate of the world, do, do you want, I'm not trying to put, don't forget all the Beatitudes. Don't forget all the work we did to show how gospel-focused and how dependent upon God each one of his Beatitudes are. I'm not trying to put the weight of the world on your shoulders, but I am trying to get you to care about the fact that God wants to use us to change his world. The weight is on him, okay? You're, any light you are is because of him. But I'm, I'm just saying, let's rejoice in the fact that God included us in the big plan. And let's, let's, let's not drag our feet. Let's not, because apparently there's a way where a, a lamp can be put under a basket. And read, look, a city set on a hill cannot be, okay, so if, if we're the light of the world and he uses a city set on a hill, okay, how do you have a city set on a hill? Someone has to build the city. Jesus is the one that builds the city. Jesus has built the city. The church is his city, right? Somebody, somebody lights a lamp. They put it on a lampstand to give light to the whole house. Somebody has to light the lamp. If we're the lamps, lamps don't light each other. The, 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 the pressure's not on the lamps. Lamps can't do anything if you don't light them. But Jesus has come and done all that is necessary for us to be lit. So let's not crouch down under a basket out of apathy, for sure, or fear, or any other thing that would stop us from fulfilling our God-given purpose, to be light in this world, in the mold of Christ. We are little individual and collective representations of the very light the Savior King brought to this world. How do he light the lamps? With himself. He is the flame. And when he lights you, man, the light is beautiful. It's a light like no other light. It's a light that pushes darkness back like no other light can. It's a light that draws men like no other light can. It's a light of real hope and real joy. It's a light that keeps people out of condemnation and, and, and this belief that it's all up to them. It's a light of the gospel. It's glorious. And my prayer, friends, is that we will believe this and we will live it. This week, for sure. You have an opportunity this week. You're, you're doing holiday stuff. You're gonna, whether you like it or not, most of you are going to be around more people than normal this upcoming week. I can tell by some of your faces how you feel about that. Like, oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. You just reminded me. Friends, I... <clears throat> I, I just, I want, I want this, this should cultivate in us a faith, not a pride in ourselves, but a faith in the power of God in us. I, I believe that we should expect if the flame of the light of God lit by Christ himself in his lamps goes into a situation, that situation should be affected. Do you believe that? Do you think like that? Do you, and can, you might be like, oh, but dude, I'm an ugly lamp. I'm a jacked up lamp. I'm dented and broke. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> the very fact that you realize that nobody, nobody should have lit you <laughs> means you're, you're one of the best possible options <laughs> for people to see the real light and glory. Because what, what does it say? Let your light so shine before men, so what? So they say, you're great? So they say, wow, you're a beautiful lamp. No, so they may glorify your Father, who is in heaven. May it be so, friends. I'm praying, I'm praying this over us this week. A holy boldness that comes from understanding what truly has happened because the gospel has changed us. We've been lit on fire. And I pray to God that those lamps, not only this week, but until Jesus comes and fulfills the final promise that we're waiting for, they would burn ever brighter to the glory of God and for the good of people. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for these verses in Matthew 5. Thank you, uh, Lord, I know, 
Lord, I know when most people preach the Beatitudes, they would do it for uh, about eight weeks and take one a week. Uh, Lord, thank you that we could come here today and, and just scratch the surface but still see the point. The point being that uh, each one of these things, each one of these inside out and upside down kingdom principles, uh, it just speaks to the reality of how you deal with mankind. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, Lord Jesus, you are the great light that dawned. Help us first realize how dark everything is without you. And help us, Lord, to be, be the lamps you've called us to be, to be that city on a hill. To, to show people that there's something other than darkness. Lord, so many people, the prophecy in Isaiah talks about people sitting in darkness, like, like they don't even know. Lord, please, please, may part, of, may part of why we need to be comforted because we are mourning, may it be the lostness of those that you love and made in your image. Lord, may we never get to the point where it does not touch our hearts that we do not mourn the reality that there are those sitting in darkness and they don't even know. Lord, may the love you have for them penetrate our hearts and may it animate and motivate us. Help us to be love-motivated lamps filled with the flame of your gospel, the power of your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.